0: Hello and welcome back to the Break the Twitch podcast on minimizing distractions and doing more of what matters through minimalism, habits, and creativity. I'm your host, Anthony Ungaro. Joining me in this episode is my good friend Kate Flanders, who is the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book The Year of Less. In the episode, we talk about how Kate started a blog on her progress paying off $30,000 of debt her shopping bans, the art of letting go intentionally, and a massive change she is making in her life and business right now. This podcast episode will inspire you to consume more intentionally, create space, and challenge you to consider the many assumptions you might make on a day-to-day basis. You're going to love this conversation. So this is where typically a podcast might mention the brand sponsor that is paying for production costs and sponsoring the podcast to make it all possible. But with this one, that is not the case because the Break the Twitch podcast is brought to you by the Break the Twitch member community. The member community is made up of listeners like you that get access to a ton of stuff behind the scenes, like audio courses, the one we just created is all about decluttering and slowly walks through day by day, just instructions on decluttering and also inspiration and philosophy around why it matters. So things like that are available to members right now. All you have to do is check out breakthetwitch.com community to find out more and sign up. I think there are about 30 spots left for the original founding member price. So definitely check that out if you're interested and you can find out more information there at BreakTheTwitch.com community. But for now, let's start the show. are you doing?
1: I am good. It is so nice to be here.
0: I was going to say, it's lovely to have you here in Minneapolis with me visiting from Squamish.
1: Yeah. And you actually said it right. (laughs)
0: Did I? That's good. That's good. Um, I've been working on my Canadian, so
1: (laughs) yeah. Things people don't hear between our conversations is Anthony speaking Canadian. It is not real life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably improper Canadian as well. (laughs) So, uh, what brought you into Minneapolis?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm here to babysit you and Rocky while Amy is out of town.
0: <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. But in addition, we were just speaking at the Camp Phi event, which yes. is right here just outside of Minneapolis, an event centered around financial independence, which is a little different than we would be talking about today on our own projects. But what we're doing seems to have applied pretty well.
1: Yeah, I think that the values um, people hold who are kind of chasing financial independence or their goals for it perfectly align with kind of the things that we do already. Um, Actually, our friend Tanya Hester, she has a blog called Our Next Life. She made a joke at some point over the weekend that they, so they being the people who are sort of ramping up to save a ton of money so that they can retire early are entrepreneurs for wimps. So (laughs) whereas so we are the non-wimpy entrepreneurs because
0: we're the the non-wimpy entrepreneurs because we're taking a little bit of risks and working for ourselves. Yeah. So you're saying, yeah. Um, yeah, I found that very, very interesting too, in that people that retire early are just kind of entrepreneurs because they're going off to do things, work for themselves or start other projects, but doing it with a significant parachute, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of it. I think that to be able to save enough that you can quit your job and be able to do work you really want to do. And I think, you know, Tanya and we actually both connected pretty well with Chad Carson, uh, who talks about uh, real estate investment quite a bit. I mean, they both spoke quite openly about how important kind of social justice issues were to them and being able to, I think Chad called it like social entrepreneurship almost. Mm -hmm. Like now that he can, doesn't have to work anymore, he can apply all the skills he's had as an entrepreneur to helping out like in his city or just other people and, and things like when he travels and stuff like that. So. It's, um, we're just doing it first without all the money behind this, but, uh, no, it was, it was a really great group of people, um, a cool setting. It was nice. The, the setup of the whole thing, we got to take lots of good breaks, which I need.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that many of the Break the Twitch listeners, readers may already be familiar with your work, but for those that, that don't, can you tell me just a little bit about what you've been working on over the last couple years and, and how we got here today.
1: Quick synopsis of that would be that I started blogging in 2010 when I was close to maxed out. Um, deleted my blog because I realized I wasn't done spending. Came back in 2011, I was completely maxed out with close to $30,000 of consumer debt. And yeah, I just started writing about it. Um, so first I wrote for two years and documented the entire progress of my debt repayment journey. And as soon as I finished that, um, I actually, I will say I had this thought that I was going to stop blogging at that point because I thought like, who's going to want to read a blog about someone who just saves a lot of money. (laughs) That was my thought. And then that blog didn't actually exist because I didn't save money, after that, which is sort of the irony of it. I found that the approach that I took to my debt repayment progress was just way too aggressive. And I think because of that, I had no balance for starters. So I wasn't giving myself like any fun money or just entertainment money. I didn't even give myself money to do things like, you know, buy the things I really wanted to at the grocery store. Like I was, I was so aggressive. And I I know that part of that was because I just felt so much shame about my debt. But the problem with it and having no balance was that as soon as I was debt free, I basically just went back to spending all of my money. So I would do this thing every single month where I would say that I wanted to save 20% of my income. And then I would get to the end of every month and document very publicly that I had actually only saved like five, maybe 10%, and made all kinds of excuses for it. Uh, and so that that's sort of my first four years of blocking. <laughs> but after a year of realizing that yeah, I was debt-free, but I was not getting anywhere near any other financial goals. So like I had different retirement savings goals, just things I wanted to do. I wanted to travel more, and I hadn't been able to do any of it. Um, and so I decided to do a challenge that sounds restrictive at first, mostly because of the word. Uh, I called it a shopping ban, and I decided to do that for a year. Um, ended up blogging about that for two years, and and completed a full two year shopping ban, um, and then wrote a book about the first year, and uh, and now we're sitting here. All right, so, <laughs> so there's a lot.
0: <laughs> I have so many questions now uh, because that was a lot. Like you said, you you went back a few years there, which is great. What was it like during those initial years? What effect did sharing that process? That sounds like a very scary thing to a lot of people, especially sharing something that you weren't particularly proud of. You said you you felt some shame around having that debt. How did it affect the process of going through that journey?
1: I think there's a reason I started writing anonymously. So when I first started my blog, I went by LC, which are technically my first two initials. Um... And even partway through, I changed to Kate being my middle name, but I never, you know, it took a long time for me to actually add my last name to it. So I think that there's a reason for that. The big one being shame and also not wanting anyone in my real life to find it. Like I wasn't so worried about as weird as that sounds, like kind of strangers on the internet and what they thought, but I didn't want anyone in my real life to know uh, about my debt, about any of the mistakes that I'd made with money. And so I wrote anonymously for a long time, but the benefits of writing was not only that I had accountability, because when I started, like, my first six months of blog posts are so bad. Like, they're just these weekly spending reports that, are, that literally say, like, how much I spend on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday – Um, and (laughs) they're so bad. Like that was it. I'm like, Hey guys, I I spent $2 and 91 cents at Starbucks five days this week. And here's some money i spent on groceries, the end,
0: keeping a public record, basically.
1: Yeah. And so I'd never expected that anyone would actually read that stuff. Um, but slowly, like after about six months, I really noticed I'd picked up a little bit of a readership and that accountability really helped me stay focused um, which is then true for all the blogging that I've done, kind of all the different challenges I've set my for myself since then. I think that the accountability has been huge. But yeah, it was hard. I mean, I didn't announce fully to my family that I had this blog or all the different things kind of that blogging had done for me so far until I had paid off like $17,000 of my debt. Wow. So I, it was like once I'd crossed more than the halfway mark and really could tell that I was going to make, like, I was going to do this. I was going to get to the end. Then I felt comfortable telling my family.
0: How did they react?
1: To be honest, um, my mom, I remember we were driving in the car and I told her first and she said to me something along the lines of like, wow, like where did the debt come from? And then I told her how much I'd paid off and she immediately said, Caitlin, you have to tell people how you're doing this, and I was like, "Well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a blog." She's like, "What?" <laughs> um, and then we went to their house, my parents' house, and told my dad. And again, he was sort of like, "Where did that number come from? Like, where did it was just over twenty eight thousand? Like, where did that come from?" And then you're like, "Well, you know, I bought this. I a little bit was for school. Um, I'd financed a car, all these different things." He's like, "Yeah, I guess." that actually does add up pretty quickly. Like $30,000 of debt isn't actually that hard to get into. Um, and so you just said, okay, well, great. You're working on paying it off. When do you think you'll be done that? And that was it. Like it wasn't a as catastrophic as I thought it was going to be. Um, but I think the the thing for me in the beginning was that I was maxed out. Like once I reached that point, I was maxed out and you truly – feel like there's, because there's no other option, but you feel like you've dug yourself into the deepest hole possible, even though 30, you know, for some people, that's not a lot of debt for others. It would feel crippling. I was just somewhere in the middle of that. And the majority of my feelings were shame and I'd messed everything up.
0: Yeah. I have felt similar things around finances as well. And it feels incredibly lonely. It feels isolating and We get into this place, at least for my own experience, we get into this place where we feel like I must be the only one with this problem Mm -hmm. and we sort of suffer in silence instead of talking about this stuff, which is why it it impresses me so much that you started a blog talking about it and you were willing to share your story, which I'm sure has inspired thousands and thousands of people to take on their own challenges and do this stuff.
1: What I would say about starting the blog, especially like the anonymous part of it, but just in general, it was... I think one of the best things for me in, in reaching success as I am now is like it was never meant to be anything, right? Like the reason I started the blog was the same reason people track their workouts. You're tracking what you're eating, like things like that. If you're wanting to change a habit or lose weight or whatever, it was just a tool for me to keep track. That was it. Like I had never kept track of my spending. I had never kept track of my debt, how much I had, how much I was paying off. I didn't even really keep track of how much I was earning. Like I used to know how much I was getting paid. I knew what was coming on payday, but I, I couldn't have really told you like what a budget was or how much I was spending in a month. Like I didn't know any of these things. And so I think the fact that I approached it just as a log, which is what a blog or like people who vlog, like that's what it is. It's a log of something. Mm-hmm. And so all I was doing was tracking numbers. That's what it was to start with. That was it. And I think that because it, that was actually pretty low pressure, right? Like it was really starting with just like, this is all I got to do for now. It's not about being perfect. It's not about all of a sudden achieving like financial independence. Like it's not about any of that stuff. It's just, I just have to track what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that that, that was what I tell people now too. Like whenever. It seems like a big topic. People always coming to me, at least, like being like, I want to start a blog or I want to start something. What would you suggest? And I'm like, I would just suggest writing first, like, see if you actually enjoy it, but keep it really low pressure. Like, when you start a project and just assume it's going to become a big thing, there's so much pressure that you just stop. And I say that because, like, that's where I'm at now in life, like, again. <laughs> so start very, very small.
0: That's fantastic advice and advice that I would share as well. I, I'm in complete agreement that. I would absolutely recommend people start blogs to do some accountability work to just start sharing publicly. I think if we work in public, we really help people in that way, but also let go of, well, I need to have opt-ins and mailing lists and all this stuff. And we, we put all these requirements on the process of sharing publicly, feeling like we need to do it a certain way. And then it's like, well, I'm not making enough money for my blog. And all this stuff. And then when we turn it into a business, uh, coming from that same place, when we turn it into the work that we're trying to do full time, it becomes a whole other beast of, of burden in a way. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a very mixed, uh, mixed thing. So I've, I've had that experience as well. So would you recommend, you said people should start writing and what are some other ways maybe that, that people could have some of that accountability?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, I think that You don't have to start writing per se or like publicly or not publicly or whatever. Um, I do think that I'm a big advocate for if it's like money specifically is tracking by hand. So it can be very messy in a notebook. Like it does not have to be pretty or organized or anything like that. Literally the act of every single day writing down what you've spent and on what that's it. Like that's, that's not very hard. Again, that's extremely low pressure. No one needs to see it. It's not for anybody but you. It's just that act of putting it down on paper. I think that, I mean, everyone's a little bit of a different learner, but I do believe that writing something down, you memorize that more than just like plugging it into a spreadsheet or just relying on any of the apps to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So you really know and see like, okay. And, and then if you're someone who's like, I want to be spending less on on whatever, groceries or on some hobby you have. When you physically write down how much you've been spending on that category of stuff, um, it hits you a lot more than just looking at your credit card statement or something like that. So I think that's the biggest thing. Accountability, though, um, a big thing I learned specifically in the shopping ban was the importance of telling one person and it being the person who's going to encourage you to make the good decision. Because I know, based on personal experiences, that it's really easy to find the friend who will enable you to do the the so like so called wrong thing. I don't think there's any wrong choice, but like if you want to go and eat pizza versus going to the gym, like you know which friend you can call and say, "Hey, dude, <laughs> like, do you want to go out for dinner right now?" Uh, if you want to buy something, you know the friends who will encourage you to buy the thing. So it's finding the person who will listen to what your goals are, like really know and and believe that you can do it so that anytime you're thinking of kind of breaking it or going off track, they can just question you. Like for me, that's my best friend, Emma. So I could message Emma and be like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking of buying this thing. Like what's going on right now? And she'd be like, girl, stop. (laughs) (laughs) check in with yourself right now. Like you don't need it. You're doing great. Like she was just such a good reality check for me. And we would like laugh together over some of the things I've, I've thought of like breaking bands for or stuff like that. But like finding the person who will honestly show up for you and say like, no, nope, you're actually going to do the good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's, that has been key for me.
0: Nice. So you mentioned the shopping ban, which I know you did a shopping ban for a full year and then turned it into two years. I know there's some specific rules you mm. used, but would you mind sharing what exactly is a shopping ban and how you structured it for yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think first I'll probably say what it what it was when I started. So the thought back then, so this was the summer of 2014, which now feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> But the summer of 2014, I, again, you know, realized that I wasn't saving very much. Um, so I had this thought in my mind, like, I just want to do something where I'm spending less, saving more. And I kept saying, I want to become a more mindful consumer, but I had, I didn't really know what that meant. I was just kind of throwing it around. Like, this is some new term for me, so I'm going to become a mindful consumer. Um, but the rules for it were pretty simple. I, I kind of decided that I would be allowed to buy essentials only for a year, so groceries, um, toiletries, like when you run out of them. So not like stockpiling stuff like that. Like, so when you run out of something, yes, you can get more. Um, obviously just people ask about things like this. So, you know, you can put gas in your car. I could still drive. I could do like all the kind of normal daily life things. I could still do it. It was just about not buying things unless I absolutely needed it. So I had a very long list of things I could not buy, which was uh, like clothes, shoes, um, accessories, electronics, books, magazine, like uh, basically anything that is a non-essential. Like again, the idea, if you really need something, yes, you can buy it. A couple things came up that year. Like my cell phone actually was a big one. My cell phone, um, it was probably three and a half years at that point and just started doing this thing where it would shut itself off. And then I would look at it and you know, you're just, Hey, you want to wake up, like turn back on. That'd be great. (laughs) And eventually it came, it was actually, there was only two months left maybe in the first year of the shopping ban and it just never turned on again. And that was, that was it. So then you go to the store and you say, I need a new phone. Um, so yeah, there were a couple things like that that came up, but it was really just about not buying something unless I absolutely needed it. And that, that, you know, kind of, was an easy way to explain it to people. I think now when I talk about the shopping ban, I hear so many concerns about how that sounds really, really restrictive. And what I've realized about it is that I think calling it a shopping ban makes it sound, and even the ban part kind of makes it sound like you're never allowed to buy anything, which that does sound restrictive and kind of awful. (laughs) I think what the biggest change that happened that year was really we could call it more like a browsing ban because the biggest thing I changed really was just a lot of habits I had around constantly looking for more. So I was always, you know, I would hear about a book I wanted. I would jump on Amazon. Then you do the thing because this was 2014. I don't even know what Amazon rules are now of like free shipping. Everyone has Prime. I still don't have that. I will add that. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, this was back when it was like, spend $25 and you'd get free shipping. So I would just add something else, make sure I got free shipping. Then like every week or two, two books would arrive. Um, and I did, I had habits like that. I had habits of kind of walking the mall. Um, again, it wasn't often, but you just do it. Um, online makes it even harder, like online shopping and social media. So I think things like I really um, didn't realize how essential it would be for me to do things like unsubscribe from retailer newsletters. I also stopped following retailers on social media and that was a a weird one because it seemed so obvious, but as time went on, I realized that I had actually almost like how to explain this. Like if you think about the way that we attach parts of our identity or we like almost build up parts of our identity to, to something we buy, like we buy it because maybe it does align with our values. It's then almost like that's part of you. So for me, I don't know, like a brand I, I do own two things from is like Patagonia. I really believe in their values. So I don't have a problem spending money on things from them that, again, it has to fit well and be right for me. But I don't know, it was almost like I followed it thinking like, oh, I'm someone who where's Patagonia or something like there's this weird, just mental shift that we have around it. So when I unsubscribed had to realize like, Oh, okay. Like who I follow isn't part of my identity, like, or the brands that I wear, like none of that is who I am. And I don't need to see their stuff all the time because the thing with following retailers online is that the only things you're seeing are more products or sales. That's, that's it. So you're constantly going to see things that you could buy sometimes at a better price.
0: This reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend of mine who is a a theater major. And this is a concept that I had never heard of before. But what you're saying is reminding me of that. His name is Paul. And Paul told me about the concept of the performance of self. It's the idea that we are all performing characters. Mm. And we all have costumes. And we all are out there performing the person we believe ourselves to be. And a big part of that is the, the brand or if we're an outdoorsy person, we wear Patagonia or different things. And again, there's nothing wrong with that because I, I feel the same way about Patagonia in particular, that their stuff is a little more expensive, but they have amazing warranties and they have these this dedication to sustainability. And, and that's just something I believe in. So that's perfectly fine, you know, but it does feel like we are trying to perform as ourselves, whatever that character may be. And that's, that's a rabbit hole. We can go down for a long time, but what you're saying reminded me of that.
1: Oh my gosh. And it makes me think of like, at the same time that I decided to do the shopping ban, I also decluttered. And that first year got rid of 70% of my belongings and same thing. Like, um, I get a lot of questions around decluttering and I'm very much the first to admit, I don't really know how to answer any of them because I was very cutthroat about it. Like I was very much like in the first two months that I did it, I think I wiped out like 45% of my stuff, like off the bat, just gone. Um, within the first maybe six months, it was like 60, 65%. Like I, I had no problems really letting go with a lot of different things. Mm. But what I realized around the seven, like six or seven month mark of that first year was that, The only things left in my home could have been kind of divided into two different categories. One being the stuff I actually used all the time, or I really, really loved it. Like I keep some sentimental things. I'm not about to like get rid of things, even just silly things. Like I will always keep my high school yearbooks because the write-ups in them are hilarious. So I don't care if I look at them every two years, I will always laugh. So I'm not going to get rid of that stuff. Um, But it was the stuff I actually used and loved. And the stuff I had at one time bought for let's call like the more aspirational version of myself. Um, So again, going back to that idea of like, like we're playing characters, like I used to buy things actually perfectly aligns with the false first step, which you talk about a lot, which I used to buy things for this other person. And then thinking that as soon as I bought it, now I was that person. So um, a big one for me was buying books that were sort of like for the smarter or more interesting version of myself. And I don't know, I think I just genuinely had that not a super conscious thought, but like a subconscious thought all the time that like people walking into my home would see the stuff and they're like, oh, this is the kind of person Kate is just because of what's on the shelf and realizing like, oh, no, (laughs) I haven't actually read it. And the value in things like that is actually using it or wearing it or reading it. And I, I didn't do that. I just bought a lot of stuff for this this other version that I thought just owning this stuff made me be.
0: I can completely relate to that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, so for those that may not be familiar, the false first step is is the, the little things we buy to try to become something, but then the feeling passes once we acquire that because we fulfill the need of that wanting to achieve that feeling. And then it sits on the shelf. An example for me before really getting more into the minimalism space and figuring out what that meant for me was books. That was the, the big one. And I bought so many books. I'd have, like you were saying, a couple books coming a week. Same kind of deal, I'd browse bookstores, things like that. And I still love books to this day. I buy my friends' books. I, I fully support books because they're worth the seven bucks that you get a single idea out of maybe totally worth it. But I was buying a bunch of books, getting the feeling just of having the book, Is this aspirational wanting to become something purchase. And then it would sit on my bookshelf and then I'd buy the next one. And so I ended up with a entire half bookshelf full of books that were in pristine condition and and untouched. And so it was actually painfully getting rid of those that allowed me to sort of relieve that book guilt, the, the debt I felt to the books I hadn't read that were on all these crazy topics and actually start reading again and being able to just focus on a single book and then going from there. So that's the false first step. And and it's a tricky thing, but but it is manageable.
1: Well and I I mean there's a couple of different things I want to comment on that on that. Like one of them, yes, the guilt in letting that stuff go. Um, our friend Courtney Carver has kind of a great saying for that because you can easily look around your home and identify like how much you've wasted, how much money you have wasted on buying stuff, but then you carry guilt when you don't use it, right? So we we look at corners of our home and you just have that sinking feeling like, oh, I should be doing that or like, oh, like I, I should be tackling that project right now. I should be reading those books, but it doesn't feel good. And I think that getting to the point where you're willing to let it go, like what Courtney says is you've paid enough and that's so true like it's unfortunate that you made that that decision sure whatever but also it's a sunk cost at this point you've spent the money it's done the money's gone and now you don't want to do it and that's okay because the point that you said of like now you're actually reading more that's pretty much all I do at home now it's so funny like i've over the past few years i've probably gotten rid of 100 to 150 books but I buy books now. It's just very different. I buy a book when I actually know that I'm going to sit down and read it as soon as I get it. Like you're like, yes, this is the book I want to read right now. So for that reason, I actually buy a lot more books in bookstores, which again means you're spending more. You're spending more than if you're getting the deal online, but I know that that is the book I'm going to read today. Um, and yeah, that feels so much better. Because I also want to say about shopping bans, like there's so many different ways we could go with it. But at the end of the day, like buying stuff isn't bad and spending money is not bad. And I think that I really want to make that point clear because when I talk about sort of the shopping ban or just these ideas of cutting back on spending in general, I I really want to make sure that we're removing the shame, right? Like that's one of the reasons that my just acknowledging my debt and then having to pay it off was so difficult. It was because there was so much shame around it. So if we are also shaming ourselves for buying things or spending things, cause this is, I haven't really actually talked about this anywhere, but that's actually a really weird thing that sort of happened, you know, the first year or two kind of after the shopping ban was really realizing that I almost felt bad when I wanted new things. Like I felt bad that I wanted some new clothes or some new books Um, I felt like I wasn't allowed or just shouldn't be buying stuff. And I don't know if that's pressure I was putting on myself because it's like, you're known as the person who did a shopping ban or like, I, I don't know, but I, I had, um, almost like shame around not my simplicity, but just new decisions because I'm this like simple living minimalist, whatever you want to go. Like I'm in that category. And so does, does that mean I shouldn't be allowed to buy things? Um, and the answer is no, like we're human beings and we have interests and there are things that help us expand our interests or just bring us joy. Um, and it's taken me time to get there, but I'm like, I need to make sure that on top of talking about spending less, I'm also saying spending is okay. It's really about getting to a place where you're spending money on the stuff you're actually going to enjoy and use right then and there.
0: Yeah. And, and I'll take it from there and, and go back to a conversation that we've had and realize that so much of what we've been talking about around aligning money and and your values is just the same thing as aligning action and value because we're using our actions to go out and earn that money. And so it really is representative of just how we want to keep this stuff aligned and moving forward and, that's kind of the, the answer, I think. For someone that wants to do a shopping ban, are there just kind of a quick overview, just a quick ca- to kind of cap that topic? What should someone s- just start with if they're looking to do something like a shopping ban?
1: Totally. I mean, I will say right off the bat, kind of what I love about this question now is I'm almost like, don't do one. Especially if you think it's going to be restrictive right off the bat, like don't jump in and just immediately restrict yourself. It's the same way I would tell someone not to immediately start budgeting Because if you've never budgeted before, you have no idea what to expect. You don't know what your numbers are. So you don't even know what you're entering. So I would actually go back to my original advice of what we were talking about or how I started track your spending for a while, like track your spending for 30 days and just see where your money is going. Um, On top of that, if you're noticing that there are things you're spending too much on um, just, you know, as you're tracking your spending, find little ways to kind of mark that off, like maybe it a, a different color, um, put a little star beside it. Like the stuff that you're like, okay, I, I want to start spending less on that thing. Just start making note of it. Um, and then the other thing I would do is in the same time or like, you know, maybe you've tracked your spending for a while and now you're still thinking of doing a shopping ban. I would say a great exercise, which isn't always like fun, but you just kind of have to keep a either the note app in your phone or a piece of paper nearby is write down all the things you think of buying and don't buy them again, just for like two weeks, 30 days, like every single time you're thinking of buying something, write it down. And because it's really shocking later when you look at that piece of paper and you're like, okay, there are things that I've thought about buying every day, every few hours, Um, and it's all about like, I mean, you and I talk about mindfulness and meditation a lot, but it's truly about just bringing awareness to what your habits are, where your thoughts go. And then, yeah, how much you are spending now and just start thinking about how you want to change things.
0: I love what you said about no shame about this because So much of this is driven by our environment. So much of this want for more than we have now is simply driven by the lifestyles we see on Instagram, in advertisements, on TV, even TV as entertainment or shows, Netflix, whatever. If you remember on Friends, their apartment was amazing. This just huge New York apartment. Right there in New York? Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, which like doesn't exist. Right.
0: This <laughs> massive apartment and the jobs they had were like a, co- you know, Rachel is serving coffee. This I, this whole thing is real. It, it's showing this extravagant life, feeling like we should be able to do that too if these people are are not making that much and still having this lifestyle. This sort of inflationary image that we see is driving so much of our feelings of lack, feelings of needing more and more. So just realize that there's no shame in this. I I totally agree with that.
1: Oh, and and to go on like just a riff off of that a little bit, I would say again, before doing a shopping ban, do things like a bit of a media ban or just start adding some restrictions to that. Like you know, unfollowing some accounts on social, not just retailers, like I think you'll really find there's a lot of curated accounts that actually make you want to buy more stuff, because whether it's pictures of people's homes, the vacations they're going on, whatever, like if if you can see and just really start to pay attention, that's like tuning into yourself and pay attention to if those images are making you want something um, start unfollowing or, or just doing timeout. Like I'm going to time out of Instagram for the weekend, or I'm going to take time off other apps, things like that. But I just think that we don't have to immediately jump into the shopping ban. I know it sounds really, really restrictive sometimes, but I would say it's actually not, I would still call it a browsing ban more than anything. And then really like learning how to figure out what you need and then buying it.
0: So I'd like to dig into your book a little bit. Your book, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Year of Less. Can you tell me a little bit about the writing process? I'd love to dig into some of the habits or things that you found coming up while you were writing that book.
1: Wow, great question. No one's asked that. This is fun. Um, Okay, so I would say it started with writing a full book proposal, which was the best thing that I could do. Um, not only because that's what helps get you a book deal. Like you have to have one to get a book deal, but because then when it's time to sit down and write, the outline is all there. Like it tells you, like you've pretty much probably already written the introduction and then it tells you, okay, in chapter one, you have to tell all of these stories and make this point by the end of it. Uh, chapter two, same thing. (laughs) Like, So what I found at first was, you know, I'd written this full proposal. We got a book deal in July of 2016. I would say that I spent the next two or so months. um, Well, first of all, I was on a road trip, which actually I stopped here, but I was on a road trip for about seven weeks of that. um, And I remember basically what I was doing was constantly thinking about the book and any time some kind of random story or memory would come to mind, I would just make note of it. So, I mean, this was not pretty. I was filling scrap pieces of paper, voice memos on my phone, um, the notepad like thing on my phone. Just, I was filling all these different places up with random thoughts that of of memories or stories that I wanted to add to the book. But then I started collecting all of that stuff and really sat down to piece it together a little bit. So I would take those like very, specifically. And so if I had like a sticky note or something of it, I would take it and then look at which chapter to add it to. And I would just kind of keep filling in the word doc that was there. Um, but I would say that I didn't really sit down to write until November, 2016. And the first draft was due at the end of January. So I had about three months and that was fine. Um, but I did learn about myself pretty quickly that I need to remove distractions. So I, I'm i just not someone, for, for how deep I went in that book, I don't think that I could have kept living like regular life and then sit down and like cry while writing for five hours. Um, so I really sort of had to remove myself from regular life for a bit to finish the book. So what I ended up doing was renting an Airbnb for two months. And I remember setting up... Uh, an autoresponder on my email that just said like you know I'm checking on Mondays and Thursdays like and may or may not respond to you, uh, and really started creating habits around that like a lot of boundaries so that I knew what I do in the morning is I I would wake up have a slow morning I would usually turn on like an audiobook or something like that, um, and actually on that note I found that because I was writing a memoir I only read memoirs during that time like to to keep keep your head in that same game. Like this is how people write. You're sharing stories. Like if I had switched over to nonfiction that was, you know, here's 10 ways to do this. Like, my brain would have gone in a totally different direction. So I sort of stayed in that style. Like I'm only listening to memoirs. Um, I would have a super slow morning though. And then I would just sit down to write the majority of that book was written on a couch uh, in an Airbnb in Squamish. Wow. And I'd say like the majority of it was written in about six to seven weeks. But I mean, I'd obviously done a ton of planning and outlining before, and it was still just the first draft. Uh, you go through it around some edits, <laughs> but yeah, I really, really tuned out and like going to Squamish, I was living in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada at the time. So Squamish is about five hours away. And even that, like I had no friends there, Um, I knew that I wouldn't be distracted, and that wasn't all great. In in hindsight, like I really realized, I am someone who needs a bit more human interaction than that. Uh, But I still have no regrets.
0: So on a typical day, I know it can change. But what did a writing day look like for you? Were, Were you blasting through eight hours of writing, or were you doing an hour or two, getting some coffee? What What did that kind of a typical writing day look like?
1: I will say I feel really grateful that at that point I had already been working remotely or for myself um, for, I don't know, gosh, like three to three and a half years. So I had pretty good habits already around that. Um, so first thing in the morning, like I said, was super slow. I would get up and make uh, coffee while listening to an audiobook. I would sometimes make breakfast right away. Either way, I'd probably then dive into more outline than anything. So making sure I knew kind of what I needed to work on that day, um, an hour or two of that, uh, then I would usually make either another cup of coffee or, or have breakfast. And then I just really got into it. Um, I do find or found then especially that I do my best writing. If I'm only listening to music, that's acoustics and no vocals, when you're writing, or at least for me, I cannot hear other words, mostly because I just want to sing. So I'm like, I don't, I can't listen <laughs> to things that I'm going to want to sing along to. But I also just find that if I'm typing and then I hear other words, they just magically appear. <laughs> so no one needs uh, lyrics to songs in a book. <laughs> but i would listen to like a lot of instrumental music and uh yeah and then you know i was really good about taking breaks for like lunch um keep going in the afternoon the majority of the writing was probably in the afternoon and by dinner time i was burned like there were a few nights especially towards the end like as i got closer and closer to my deadline that those were pretty long days but i couldn't really write write for more than like 3 to 4 hours most days mm-hmm.
0: So that was a lot of the book writing process. And then it eventually came out, sold tons of copies, Wall Street Journal bestseller. What are things looking like now? You've been blogging and you had a podcast and stuff like that. What's been the evolution since releasing this big, exciting book?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's Well, it's probably hard to even share like where it's at today without talking about even just the release and what the first few months of that were like, because again, as we've sort of talked about in the beginning of this, I started a blog anonymously where I was documenting like how much I was spending at Starbucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't doing anything big that a lot of people would want to read. Like that wasn't the point when I really started all of this years ago. And then have had this evolution of, yeah, I've shared more and more online, but the book was very different. It was a lot deeper. There was so many stories I've never shared before, some of them even with friends in my real life. And I still just was very naive, though, and had this thought that, like, the book's going to come out, and a month later, I'll be back to blogging every week. It just never dawned on me that life would change or that that wouldn't be possible, And what I found is that not only was sort of the promotional period or like the book launch, whatever you want to call it, a lot just more like emotionally and mentally draining than I had expected. Um, And we can talk about that. But I just think that I started going through a lot of growth that I had never expected. I think that you know, as the numbers were coming in or a certain feedback was coming in, just having to ask myself a lot of questions about like, what's next? Because I did realize it will not be going back to just blogging one month later. Like I just, I didn't have the time. I didn't have the bandwidth, like again, emotional or mental. Um, I just couldn't. And so it's been a really weird and amazing year, but when you're, I could feel personal growth all year, which has just been really restrictive in some ways. Cause you kind of just have to let that happen. Um, I would say that partway through that, I did have this realization that it felt like it was time to sort of, I've been just saying like burn everything to the ground mm. and not the book. You can't burn that to the <laughs> ground, <laughs> but like just kind of burn down past projects who i thought I was and kind of like let myself become who I can be. Um, but that's been a weird, it's just been a weird year.
0: About burning every, everything to the ground. Was there a moment that sort of hit you after this book launch? Was there a moment that provided that feeling or was this sort of an evolution that you're getting to?
1: I think it was Probably not an exact moment, but, you know, in the first three or so months that the book came out, I did over a hundred interviews and I really paid attention to not only, you know, what those interviews felt like, but the answers that kept coming up and sort of how I was feeling about it and maybe the direction I wanted to be going in the future there were so many questions that I just didn't expect. And then also just realized I could control a little bit more of the direction of what's next. Like I didn't just have to kind of go along for the ride anymore that I could, I don't know. I think like, again, this is where it's, it's been difficult to even find all the words for it. But I think that part of it, I felt this pressure all year of like, you know, so many people have read the book and what are they going to think of me or what are they going to think of any content I do in the future But then also realizing that that's an incredible gift and that I, I can choose what's next. Like I can create the conversations I want to be having because what I found was there were a lot of frustrations in some interviews, not all, like some have been amazing, but I did a lot of like radio or television where you get like, like four minutes. So fast. And like... Hey, let's talk about a memoir that we know nothing about, uh, that's like deeply personal, talks about like binge drinking, quitting drinking, family stuff, all these different things. Uh, I'm going to sum it up as, so were you a shopaholic? (laughs) The extreme frustration in having four minutes to explain that not only did it have nothing to do with that. But then having all these feelings of like, oh, now I want to go to battle for just this stereotype that's been placed on women. They're like, oh, of course we must be shopaholics. Of mm. course we are. Of course that's what my problem was. Like, put me in your little box. That will. That's so helpful for me and all women out there. And so it was, I couldn't say any of those things, obviously. But just having those feelings come up and and thinking about what what could be next, um, or just different ideas for what I wanted to be doing in the future and realizing that it just didn't fit into what I was currently doing. And, but really struggling with that, like, you know, the, the blog is something I've had now for almost eight years. I had a podcast for two and a half years. Um, it's totally unrelated, but I'd been working on another website with a friend for three years and just all these different projects. And then just realizing like, okay, like, just, I, I think the question or thing I was sort of starting to ponder was like, just because I've done something for a while, does that mean I have to do it forever? And it, it hasn't been easy to just go like, oh yeah, no, I'm burning it all down. It's been this constant thing all year, which like I know you've even had to listen to me ramble about many <laughs> times. Like, is it okay if I stop doing this thing? Or is it okay if I walk away from some of this stuff? And And what would be next? And what would I do? It has not been this sort of quick... Yeah, I'm just gonna burn everything to the ground and start fresh. It's come with a lot of questions, um, but yeah, I think it all started during that period of time, during all of those interviews, and all the different things that were coming up for me during it.
0: That has to be frustrating, the interview thing, <laughs> and, and I, I understand it's probably difficult, like you said, for uh, an anchor or or someone on a news channel or to dive in, like you said, to a lifetime of memoir in a four minute segment. I I did a TV segment recently that was six minutes, which I was told is an eternity in TV time. And we got about halfway through the stuff I wanted to talk about by the time the segment was like, well, we have 30 seconds left. and, And it really made me realize how media is changing and how we as creators of podcasts and, and blogs have the ability to set a new pace, a slower one, one where we can go in depth and we can explore these things. And I really appreciate that about a lot of the work that you do and and the conversations that I've had with you about these things. So it's uh, it is pretty fascinating, isn't it? We, we need to kind of figure out a box and then put, oh, oh that's where you are. Cool. Now we're on the same page. Now, give me a few sound bites and let's move forward.
1: Well, and I I do get it. And that's where um, I will say just off the top of that, it was hard to talk about some of this stuff or like share my frustrations because I didn't want any of it to sound ungrateful. Sure. Like it was one of those things sure. where I'm not ungrateful for all the interviews and I'm not ungrateful for any of that it's more just that it came with a lot of lessons. Right. And I think that, so my background is in communications and I studied television and radio and journalism. And I, you know, I've, I've always had an interest in sort of mass communications and I don't know, just like cultural stuff and how that fits into it as well. And so this year what I've been noticing, not only because I've been on the other side of it where it's like, okay, I'm, I've been in that world just very temporarily, but realizing that I don't think like maybe yes, a little bit, but I don't think we get our best information from like television or radio. It's just not, not always happening. Some programs. Yes. But there's so much like kind of the quick morning shows or stuff like that. Like, are you going to hear about a really amazing book there? Maybe, but like, you won't know because it's so short. And I think that in a time right now where, our number one our attention is in all different directions i actually think that we're craving slowing down and having deeper conversations because everything feels so fast and superficial that i think that's why things like podcasts are blowing up because everyone's like no i want to i want to hear the real life stuff like i want to hear what's really going on and go deeper into it in a way that traditional media just can't Um, I could, yeah, we could riff on communications and media for (laughs) a long time, but that's, that's, I think like, it's so important, like the work that you are doing too. And just podcasts that allow people to have more time to talk about what's going on in life because in so many, I don't know, like, even if you just think of like dinner conversations you're having with people or over coffee, like how many times people are looking at their phone and they're not even paying attention to that. So when you can give someone the space to actually be like, Hey, let's just talk about something. Yeah, we're going to record it, but like let's talk for as long as we have to talk for what, what does that look like? Um, it's just, it's really rare. And so that's why I think that it's becoming even more and more important to, to be able to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. So after going through this process of, burning everything to the ground as long as it may take to sort of reinvent and and recapture. What are some thoughts on your mind now about this and what you are reflecting on that?
1: Hmm. So there are things that I still haven't fully burned, (laughs) but I'm working on it. Um, A big one has been thinking about just this idea I've had of not blogging anymore again, which has come with a lot of questions and concerns. And can you walk away from something you've worked on for a long time? But I think there's so many parts to this. I have a lot of thoughts right now around kind of how much media is out there in general. And like, if we looked at blogs, books, podcasts, um, television shows, especially things like streaming options, Netflix, Hulu, whatever else you guys have in the States that I don't get. In Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if we haven't yet, we're like really close to reaching a critical mass on all this stuff, just meaning that there's too much, there are too many things and too many options, um, too many hours of stuff out there that we can't possibly get through. And I think that we're, we're really, I'm just watching consumers. I think consumers are reacting to it in ways where they're consuming less or just differently. Like something I've been paying attention to with blogs is I don't think blogs are dying. I don't know if that's possible. I've been blogging since realistic. I was probably like 16 years old or something, but, um, I Think it's different. I think that blogs aren't sort of the communal hangout place that they used to be. I think that we're really, again, like because our attention is being pulled in so many different directions, we're willing to like read things and then we don't really engage with it anymore. Um, this is why I think things like podcasts and uh, even like YouTube or just video in general, like that's really booming because. It either has to be really easy to comment, which things like YouTube and Instagram, it's really easy. It takes seconds to type something in, you know, um, it has to be really easy to engage with or we're not doing it. So we're kind of just consuming and then walking away. And so my thought has been like, what if I can do things differently so that I can keep the engagement up and, and thinking that I don't think, I don't think blogs are the place right now. And at least not for me, I'm just not not feeling, I don't read blogs anymore myself personally. So for content creators, like a question I've been asking myself all year has been like, pay attention to how you consume content. And like, maybe we should only be in those spaces. Like I'm at the point now, I don't have Facebook. I'm not using Twitter. I love Instagram and I love newsletters. So why would I do anything else but write a newsletter and be on Instagram? That's where I like to consume So maybe that's where I should be creating. And maybe that's not like, maybe it's like too simplistic of like a a solution. But I think the days of like forcing ourselves to be on all platforms is coming to an end because we're realizing as the platforms are changing that it probably just doesn't make sense anymore. So how can we do less but better? And like, so we're really showing up and that, you know, content consumers are also showing up like we're going the places that they are.
0: Personally, I felt a lot of pressure to blog, to write, and it sort of made writing difficult for me, made writing feel heavy in a lot of ways, and writing has never been my thing to begin with, even though it's something I tried doing every day for almost two years, and I really think that we can look, not just for creators blogging or doing these different things, but... I really do think we can look at the types of things we do every day and wonder why am I doing it why am I doing this that's such a big question but but even just with simple things taking them as an assumption instead of a heck yes and I want to be doing this it's really amazing what starts to happen when you step back and address things in that way.
1: Well, and I remember having the conversation with you and I just said like, no, like YouTube is your thing. Like, what if you just did YouTube and, and even in saying it to you, I'm like, who am I to be (laughs) suggesting this? Because I was just on the brink of starting to think about some of this for myself. Um, but it is that question, like for content creators specifically, like when you're, when you're noticing, let's say like Facebook or Twitter, whatever you're doing isn't working, We keep pressuring ourselves to like find the ways to do it better and get the reactions or the engagement that we want. And like, what if instead you just let it go? Like what, what would happen? What? Yes, maybe it means there's some people you're not going to reach, but like who else could you reach if you put that energy, like number one, by like releasing the pressure and just focusing on what you're good at, but like want to keep getting better at. Right. Like just what, what could happen? And I don't know the answers because like I'm at the beginning of this, I'm at the beginning of saying like, yeah, in September, I'm going to start talking about this and start saying that I'm only going to be on my email and, and on Instagram. And so like, I'll report back maybe in January or in six months or something. (laughs) And I, (laughs) I will let you know how it's going. But I'm just curious and also curious, like, will I enjoy creating again? Because that's another thing, like blogging started to feel like pressure. I think the book did that in general as well. Like, again, because I had no idea what to expect from it. I, I never could have told you it would sell 10,000, let alone 50,000 copies. Like, I never knew that that was going to happen. So, but with it came this weird, mostly internalized pressure. Me just thinking like, oh, like, readers are going to be expecting something from me. They're going to be expecting, you know, the blog, or they're going to be expecting uh, me to be talking always about decluttering and shopping bans or just this different stuff. And just like, number one, having to check with myself and be like, that book was about July, 2014 to like June, 2015 it's 2018 now, and there's no way I'm going to just keep talking about the same thing over and over. I'm growing, I'm changing. It makes sense that we're going to evolve and and keep talking about different things as we mm-hmm. do. So I had to all year, it's been like releasing pressure that I've been mostly putting on myself. Um, but that, yeah, the, the book did in its own way. And, mm-hmm. So I, d- I don't know exactly like what's next. I do know next year I want to um, work on a proposal for a second book. Um, and I also have thoughts around doing a podcast, but doing a podcast in a way that feels the most natural to me and doesn't feel um, like I don't have a spe- specific goal of like what people need to be saying or <laughs> anything like that. Because that was sort of another hard part with some of the interviews was realizing that some hosts, not you, some hosts – they almost again, like want you to have all the answers and they like put you on this weird pedestal and you're like, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to be on this. I don't want to be up here. Like, can we just talk like human beings? That's what I want to do. So if I start a podcast, that's what it has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have all the answers yet, but like, these are all the thoughts that are percolating.
0: <laughs> <sighs> that's great. And, and I've had similar thoughts as well. It's It's in fact, no one listening would see this, but in my podcast invitation email, when I invite someone to be on it, which we talked directly, so uh, you didn't get this, but uh, in it says this podcast is about people in progress,
1: mm. and
0: and to me that's who we all are, no matter what, how many bestselling books we have or different things, we're all in progress, and and so uh, hopefully we do keep that tone with the with the podcast because it's it's just kind of who we all are uh, we're all working on stuff.
1: I think that that is something almost, I wish not that I had gotten your email, but that like someone had said to me even this year, again, that sort of pressure I've felt all year and just, I wish someone had just been like, no, like you don't have to be the expert on this, that or the other. You wrote about a period of time in your life. You didn't write about a subject that you're the expert on, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm also just not comfortable really doing anyways. Um, but, yeah, I wish I someone had just said that, like, you don't have to be perfect or know everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think it's possible to think too much about decluttering and over optimizing every area of your life?
1: Yes. Um, that is where I would say, like, I don't in most ways. Um, the optimizing part and and stuff like that. I think that that's also one of the reasons I have such a hard time sometimes having discussions about minimalism in just the traditional way that we're seeing it or like the most common way that we're seeing it discussed. Like everyone just sort of, not everyone, the majority sort of look at it as just this, you're gonna declutter and have this beautiful home and everything's gonna be perfect and your whole life is going to be perfect after that. Like that is sort of the solution that we're sold. Um, And it's one of the reasons that I don't always love having conversations about it. Like I wanted to say to people like, yeah, decluttering helps. It has helped me. I didn't have or I don't have still to this day like answers on how to do it. Like I said, I'm cutthroat. (laughs) I'm like that thing. Get out of my house. Um, So I don't have a lot of answers for how to do it or why to do it or anything like that it's because also it's only been one of the things that helped mm-hmm. like decluttering helped me let go of a lot of stuff and also you know like we've talked about let go of this aspirational version of myself I wanted to be and and stuff like that but it didn't make my life perfect and so I that's another part of it I just don't want to say like, new declutter everything gets better yeah i actually think for a period of time it probably gets a little bit worse it
0: does yeah at least in my experience (laughs) it's the the experience of pulling everything out of a closet and i always joke having that closet throw up all over your living room things that have been packed away hiding out of out of sight out of mind and all of a sudden it's right there and you're digging through that stuff and it's like (laughs) it's it does get worse before it gets better a lot of the time, but it does get better.
1: Mm-hmm. But I will say like, you got to move past that part. Even like that's one part of it that, yeah, that's the act of decluttering can be extremely frustrating. What's harder almost though, is then moving into the space of living a lifestyle that most people around you are not living. And we're not talking about that enough. Like, I feel like that's like a discussion that's not coming up enough. We're just like, yeah, become a minimalist and everything gets better. And it's like, well, actually everyone in your life is going to think you're a weirdo internally. If you're, if you have any anxious thoughts, like I have a million of them every day, you're also going to think you're a weirdo and like, no one gets you anymore. Um, you're going to get a lot of comments. I'm used to this or have gotten used to this because uh, one of the biggest like countercultural changes I made in my life was when I was 27 and I decided to stop drinking And that comes with questions still to this day. Like I mentioned it when we were at camp FI or camp FI or whatever. I don't know what to call anything. (laughs) (laughs) But when we were at that this past weekend, you know, I got some questions about quitting drinking, why I quit, what, what it's been like, what do people say? And I think that's the stuff we're not talking about enough in this space as well. Like, yeah, when you decide to do stuff that's different from most people around you you're going to get questions. You're going to get comments, some judgments, some because people might take it as criticism of something they're doing differently. And I don't, I just don't think we're talking enough about the fact that if you go really deep with it, if you get rid of a lot of stuff and truly change your whole lifestyle, it's just, it's not bad. I still think it's completely worth it but you have to know it's going to be different. Like it it does change some things. I mean, I remember during the shopping ban specifically, I didn't really realize how many conversations we have about shopping. And and it's not like, Hey girl, what'd you do at the mall this weekend? (laughs) It's not that stereotypical stuff. Like we will tell someone, Oh, I just bought this thing for work, or I just got this deal on whatever. Oh, did you get new running shoes? Yeah, I did. And and I got them on a deal or like, you know what I mean? We talk about it all the time. And I really didn't realize that until I had nothing to add to the conversation. And it was the same as quitting drinking. Like people talk about drinking <laughs> all the time. It comes up almost every single day. And then you have nothing to add to it. Um And that, so yeah, it just takes time and, and to figure out who you are in this, in this new world. So I just don't think we're talking enough about that stuff. I think the majority of what we're sold is minimalism as an aesthetic, that everything's going to be white, matching, lined up, beautiful, um, or just that the act of letting go simplifies everything. Mm. And I don't think we're talking about what actually comes next.
0: Absolutely. And a couple of things that I thought of while you were mentioning that one is that simplicity is hard. (laughs) (laughs) simplicity is is actually harder otherwise that's just would be the default state Mm -hmm. so it's work to get there and it's work to keep it there at least that's been my experience yeah is it worth it absolutely as much as possible anything i work to simplify or or try to declutter it allows me to figure out the rest of the stuff a little easier but it hasn't made my life this miraculous effortless dance <laughs> you know it's it's uh it's just been a continuous process because i think it is worth it but it is work but then again what is worth it that you don't have to work for and you just get i think oh yeah that's like that's question right? yeah
1: that's a question um it is work though i think that i think we are examples of it in showing that you know we're constantly experimenting we're constantly trying new things Because it's very easy to like either backtrack and go back to like kind of some old habits or to realize that like, you know, you've gone down part of the way, but now you do want to go deeper into it. Um, And so I think that by the fact that you and I often share things that we're up to or working on, that shows it also that it's not just, oh, I decluttered once and everything was done. Uh, like it doesn't quite look like that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, another conversation we had this past weekend with uh, another friend of ours one night, it was actually like everyone was else was up in this other conversation and the three of us got really deep into something, but part of it being just this idea that kind of personal growth and kind of constantly pushing yourself, being super self-aware is not always easy either. Um, and it's not about optimizing, <laughs> but, you know, like being self-aware is, is work in its own way too. like to constantly be reflecting on what you're doing, if it's working or not. It, Cause the questions can be as simple as like, how am I feeling right now? Oh, I'm not feeling great. I'm feeling super anxious. I'm stressed out. Um, money's not good right now, whatever it is. And like, okay, well, what's, what's been going on that I got back to this. Uh, and I think that Yeah, it's even just that, that the fact that we're kind of want to keep moving down this path, it's still not easy. But we have obviously seen enough benefits to keep going for it.
0: Exactly. To the point of choosing something different, you can call it the main different from the mainstream or whatever you want to call it. To that point, I I asked my Facebook friends this question because I, I had this sort of not epiphany, but I had a moment where I started thinking about celebration, about Celebrating an achievement, a milestone, something. And the question was this. I asked, and this is pretty rhetorical, how can you or how do you celebrate without drinking anything and without eating anything? And some answers were things like, I call my mom and tell them what happened or what I did or what went down. But there weren't too many other answers other than that, because personally, I am very food centric. I, I love food, and that's always been a comfort aspect of, of my life. And, and so when I think celebrating, we go out for a drink, we go out for a glass of wine, we go out and have a dessert somewhere, or we go out for dinner. And that's how Amy and I celebrate quite a bit. But I was looking at that and thinking, huh, why do we have to celebrate and celebrate why do we have to celebrate with consuming something? What's another way? So if anyone listening has an idea of how to celebrate or embrace an accomplishment or a milestone, I'd love to hear hear from you.
1: I would too. <laughs> only because it made me think of two things. One is that I'm just not great at celebrating in general, and that's something I've been trying to get better at only in the, the sense of wanting to remember certain milestones. Mm-hmm. I find that... I have a lot of friends who, yeah, they do just like seem to do a really great job of remembering and like commemorating certain milestones. And I am not good at that. I'm the kind of person on my birthday, people are like, let's do something. I'm like, nope. And I will just like hang out at home or go for a hike because it's in the summer or something like that. But I don't do anything to sort of celebrate. But yeah, my friend Carrie's been good about being like, it's important. It's just to remember. It creates a memory. So I'm like, okay. But if I look back at the book, my friend Amanda, like the day I got my book deal, took me out for dessert. And when I finished the first draft of the book, we had dessert. And when the book came out, um, two girlfriends in Squamish, because I didn't want to do anything big. They're like, let's go out for a nice meal. Let's do whatever. I was like, eh, let's get gluten free pizza and like watch a movie. And we consumed things in all of those, those moments. I would say like with that one, though, what was really lovely was that they're both trained coaches. So they mm. did a lot of It was probably a little bit of work, but they asked me some really great questions to kind of remember, help me remember what that day included. So asked me like what my favorite interview was so far, what felt the best that day. Um, It was just questions. It was just a conversation, but I would also like to hear how people celebrate.
0: Kate, what does creativity mean to you?
1: I would say the short answer to that is just being curious. And on top of being curious, being willing to try and fail, which again, I am not always great at. So when I'm saying that, like, this is what it means to me, I'm not like, and I am perfect at this. (laughs) That's, that's not quite it. I think something I've been thinking about a lot this year is sort of who are my role models in that space? Like who are the most creative people I know? And I actually think the number one person who comes to mind is my dad. And that's pretty simply because he does everything himself. Like he, I remember when his mom passed away, I was like 14 or 15, his mom passed away and he got a small inheritance and he decided he wanted to build himself a garage. Like my dad's house is on a third of an acre, the majority of which used to be gardens. And we had a, like a small, but little above ground pool for a few years. And it was just, we were just hanging out outside, but my dad was like, I really want a proper garage, like some kind of like a workshop. So he literally built it from scratch including digging the foundation, like cement pour the foundation his best friend's a carpenter so they did the framing together every single like the plumbing, every single part of that he just looked up okay like give me access to the building codes. how do I do this like for my municipality, what are the rules? Um, and he does everything to a T but he it's not like he knows, what to do when he starts all those things. Like he's, he, he might not have experience doing any of that stuff. He's just willing to try. And that's not always the easiest solution. Um, I would say for the most part has probably saved him a lot of money, but uh, yeah, he's just willing to try. And if I look back at my childhood, it's like become very obvious to me over, over the past couple of years that I have been anxious since I was a kid and that I was also um, a perfectionist. And so I wasn't willing to try most things like I would try it maybe once. And if I didn't do well right away, I immediately quit and never went back to it. I I did that with all kinds of lessons and sports. I was really good at reading. So I just read a lot of books and I swam. I was a good swimmer. So those were my two things. But I didn't do anything else. And I was always afraid to just try. And I think that that's what creativity is, though, is just being curious and open to trying new things, even if you're not going to get it right.
0: Kate, what is the best place for people to find you online and your work in general?
1: Okay. So at the moment, let's just go with kateflanders.com probably slash newsletter, (laughs) because that'll be, that'll be where to reach me regularly. Um, and just Instagram at kateflanders.
0: And for those listening, that's C A I T yes. Flanders.com. Yes. So now it is time to grab a question from the bowl. And these are questions that have been left by previous guests and submitted as well. So I will grab a question for you here and we'll go ahead and do it.
1: All right.
0: Yes. If you want to go ahead and grab a question.
1: Mm. Mm, I like this. If you
0: don't mind reading it and who contributed it.
1: Yeah. uh, Lucia asked, what makes you laugh? Um, I kind of want to say my own jokes <laughs> because <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I think that's a thing you're not supposed to admit to, but like that's real life. Uh, I would just say, I don't know, like not taking myself too seriously and hanging out with people who are la- the same. Like, yeah, you can watch comedy or do whatever, but I'm like just hanging out with people who are willing to admit to not being perfect and like laughing at themselves. Then I can laugh at myself and, Yeah, I laugh a lot.
0: Well, Kate, we're definitely going to have to do a follow-up episode probably in season two, but thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I'm so glad that I came to town so that we could do this. Yeah.
0: Okay. As always, I'd love to share just one of my takeaways from the podcast, but this is the time when I need to ask you for reviews on Apple podcasts if you are so willing Reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts like this one, so I would love it, if you're enjoying this podcast, to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It would be greatly helpful, I would really appreciate it, and it would mean the world to me if you did that. One of the things that really stood out for me is the idea of letting go. It plays right into minimalism, it plays right into all of the themes of Break the Twitch, but... Especially something that came up was letting go of something that has been very successful for us, letting go of something that was a big part of us. So in Kate's example, she has been blogging very personally for a number of years, and it's something that's gone quite well. She wrote very personally in the book that came out. And... And all of these things really were a big part of what she was doing and the things that have helped her get to where she is now. But she sort of identified this opportunity. She's identified this desire to do things differently now and is making this massive change to go forward and to reach the next phase of of her business, of her life. And I really admire that. It's something I think we can all remember. We can all reflect on that idea. Simply the idea that just because we've done something, and even if it's gone very well for a number of years, we're not necessarily stuck doing that thing. We can absolutely still make a different decision if that thing that is going well is not necessarily the right thing for us at this point in life. There's always going to be seasons. There's always going to be different times in life when things work better than others, but we can make that choice. And we can make that choice to let go of something that is going to create space for something new. And even if you don't know what that new thing is or exactly how it's going to take shape, we can allow ourselves to do that. It's scary. It can often just feel completely overwhelming. But on the other side of that, fear is often something greater. It's often something bigger that might even be more aligned with our values, with our vision than what we had before. So see if you can find that opportunity to step into something new, to assess the things you're doing, even if they're going well. And maybe find an opportunity to let go of something that you're not ready to keep holding on to. Something that you want to create some space for. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.